BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us. Noah Greenwald, he's the Endangered Species Director for the Center for Biological Diversity. Biologicaldiversity.org is the website. His Twitter handle is Noah underscore Arc underscore 757. Noah, welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us. Oh, thanks, Tom. I subscribe to Nature, you know, and one of the top stories that they highlighted was how there are an estimated 10,000 potentially pathogenic, as yet unidentified viruses in the reservoir of wild animals around the world. And that with increasing frequency, this is where syphilis came from, it's where the flu came from, it's where, I mean, you pick your disease, right? Smallpox, measles, mumps, they all came out of animals originally, and we can identify the time that they did, you know, and many of them just came out in the the last thousand years, some of them in the last few hundred years. And the same with MERS and SARS and now the coronavirus, uh, these have all emerged in the last 20 years. And in every case, it was the result of humans decreasing the habitat of wild animals, decreasing wild habitat. And as we were decreasing that wild habitat, the diseases that were being kept stable and away from us in that habitat were attacking us. And so in that context, it seems to me really important that we not destroy the wild anymore. Yet that's exactly what the Trump administration is trying to do. Tell us about this. Yeah, so the Trump administration proposed a rule that makes it harder to protect habitat for endangered species. I absolutely agree with you in that diseases are coming from nature and that if we want to avoid that problem, we have to protect more of the natural world. In fact, the UN has a goal 30 by 30 and 50 by 50, which would mean we would protect 30% of the natural world by 2030 and 50% by 2050. And that's under the Convention on Biological Diversity. The U.S. is unfortunately one of the one of only two countries that hasn't signed on to that. So that's unfortunate. In this case, what the Trump administration is doing is under the Endangered Species Act, when a species is listed as threatened or endangered, one of the requirements is that the Fish and Wildlife Service designate critical habitat for them. And that mm-hmm. is the area that they need to survive and recover. And it can include areas where they don't currently occur and that's really important because otherwise the only protections that endangered species get are for where they actually occur. And oftentimes endangered species have lost lots of range. And so they need to be recovered to a bigger area in order to be secure. What this does is it says essentially that for an area to be designated as critical habitat, it has to have habitat right now. And That's problematic in a lot of ways. So, for example, the northern spotted owl, right now it has over 9 million acres of critical habitat. And many of those acres aren't the old growth forests that the bird needs. They're young forests that have been logged, but they'll eventually become old growth. Under this proposed rule, Fish and Wildlife Service wouldn't be able to do that. They wouldn't be able to designate those areas because they presently don't have habitat. And in fact, under a settlement with the timber industry, the Trump administration is expected to issue a revised designation of critical habitat for the owl. And so we'll see how this rule impacts that. 
Are they doing all this just for the logging industry, or are there other industries that want to pillage nature? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there are other industries, the oil and gas industry in particular, is one that's causing a lot of habitat destruction and has been in recent decades. So that's another one. But this rule stemmed from some litigation over a species called the dusky gopher frog, which occurs in the southeast. It's one of many species that's dependent on longleaf pine forests. And so it is actually the timber industry that drove this because that lawsuit was brought in part by Weyerhaeuser. And so what what happened is the frog needs ephemeral ponds, ponds that are wet in the spring, and that's where they lay their eggs. And then it dries up. And so there's not fish in there to prey on their eggs. And then otherwise, it mostly lives in the forest. It's restricted to basically one pond in Mississippi. And so you can imagine that one pond is does not make a species secure. You know, if anything happens to that, the species yeah. is basically gone. So the Fish and Wildlife Service has designated some critical habitat in Louisiana as well that had the ephemeral ponds, but the frog hadn't been seen there since the 1960s. And the land was actually leased to warehouser for logging it didn't have the right kind of forest it had slash pine rather than longleaf pine forest so they argued that since it didn't have the longleaf pine forest it couldn't be critical habitat even though it could be restored to that and it had the ephemeral ponds which are actually kind of the more limiting thing for the frog one interesting twist about this was that warehouser didn't own the land and the landowner argued that the critical habitat impinged on him because he wanted to develop the land, which Weyerhaeuser has no interest in, obviously, because it would end their lease, essentially. But Weyerhaeuser sued anyway, which I hold that against them. I do. And so they lost at the district court. They lost at the appeals court. They took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gave them a very narrow ruling saying Fish and Wildlife Service hadn't defined habitat and has to do that. And so that's what generated this rule. Ah, I see. How extensive is the destruction of nature in the United States and around the world? Is that a number that you have at your fingertips? You know, I I haven't seen anyone quantify that number, and that would be an interesting thing to try and do. But we have been losing a lot, in particular, something like old-growth forests. Luckily, mm-hmm. we had the Northwest Forest Plan for the owl and the merlet and for salmon in Oregon and Washington. So we protected a lot of what was remaining. But in exchange, we basically let go of it on private and state land. So we've continued to see loss of old growth forests in the Northwest. You know, other examples are in the last 10, 15 years, we saw massive oil and gas development in North Dakota on the back end oil reserves and then in the Permian Basin in New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma. So we've seen, you know, massive habitat destruction there as well. The Permian Basin's been the biggest oil play in the world for, you know, the last decade or so. Tar sands in Canada, you know, so we continue to see habitat destruction ongoing in North America and in the world. I'm 52. And so in my lifetime, the human population has gone from three and a half billion to seven billion and um, that in combination with consumption patterns has you know, really led to a great deal of habitat destruction. Yeah, just the pressure of humanity, as it were. Noah Greenwald, the Endangered Species Director with the Center for Biological Diversity, biologicaldiversity.org. Noah, thanks so much for dropping by and filling us in on all this. It's fascinating and, frankly, a little horrifying what the Trump administration is trying to do. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. Dr. Justin Frank, psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, author of Trump on the Couch and Obama and Bush on the Couch as well. His Twitter handle, Justin Frank MD, is on the line with us. Dr. Frank, welcome back. Why do you think it is that Donald Trump seems so aggressively interested in actually destroying our democratic republic. Thomas Paine said the beating heart of democracy is the vote. Donald Trump is trying to destroy our belief 
in our election systems. Why would he do that and so many of the other things he's doing that are literally tearing this country apart? Well, it depends. Hi, Tom. It depends on how deep you want to go. So I'm not sure how to answer that question since I'm a psychoanalyst. And it so, might not make sense. Oh, we've got about four minutes or five minutes, so oh, well, whatever you can do in that. No problem. <laughs> if we have four minutes, God, that's like a whole analysis. Here's the thing. He wants to destroy anything that has to do unconsciously with his father. And that includes the fathers of our country and the founding fathers. He wants to destroy our republic because he wants to destroy ever having to rely on the past. He really hates a lot of things in his childhood. The second thing is he wants to destroy our belief systems. The reason he lies is because he was lied to as a little boy when his parents told him they loved him. So for the rest of his life, he's been lying to everybody else. He was first lying in order to build his career, in order to improve his self-esteem when he had reading problems. And then later in life, now as president, he's actually lying to save himself. The third thing is that the reason he wants to destroy our voting system is that he needs to be able to continue to project, which means he needs to continue to disavow who he is. And the only way he can do that is by breaking down things that are essentials of our democracy. And by that, for instance, he said on a tweet, the 3rd of August, in all caps, and it said, something like fake news is the enemy of the people that was a double projection in all caps because he is the fake news he makes everything up including recently about the coronavirus also about the violence in portland also i mean he's been making things up his whole presidency about those big uh, groups of people coming up from the south to the fence and all that but the second thing is he's projecting the fact that it's the enemy of the people, that fake news is the enemy of the people. He's actually, therefore, telling the truth about himself. He, Donald Trump, who is fake news, is also the enemy of the people because he is undermining him American democracy. Right. You recently called him psychotic. That's a very specific and strong label. Please explain. It's a strong label outside of the medical profession, but in my profession, it's not such a strong label because there are lots of aspects of psychosis, and maybe it was too... People think that if you're psychotic, a lot of lay people think that if you're psychotic, it means you can't tie your shoes and you walk around talking to yourself and wearing, you know, a tin hat and everything. That's just not true. Psychotic has to do with a thought disorder. It's about a disorder of thinking. And it's so profound that you cannot assess what's real and what isn't. You cannot do what's called reality testing. If you have compromised reality testing, you are on the edge of being psychotic, especially if it's chronic and it's consistent. Is this why he says that testing is what gives us all these cases of coronavirus? That's correct. He says that testing gives us all the cases of coronavirus. That's a psychotic thought. He has what's called a thought disorder. That's a classic example, but we're so used to normalizing him, accepting the fact that he has all these weird thoughts. There's so many that are psychotic. You can make a list of them. He is a textbook psychotic person. Now, there used to be a term called psychotic character, which is maybe what he is. I don't know. So, Professor Frank, what do we do with this? How should Americans respond to a psychotic president? The main thing to respond to is to try to not believe anything he says and not give him too big of a bully pulpit, to not continue to do those things. The second obvious thing is to mobilize, 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 and there needs to be some safeguards set up by the politicians to make sure we're safe from him being more psychotic while he's president, because he still will be president until January 20th. So I think that there needs to be some safeguards set up in the White House, guarding him. He needs to be quarantined in some way. I don't know how to do it. Dr. Justin Frank, his book, Trump on the Couch. And Dr. Frank, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's always great talking. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Frank, you can tweet him at JustinFrankMD. Hey, it's Kaylee. 
Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. On the line with us is Jason O'Neill. He's the deputy director of the Western Values Project. The westernvaluesproject.org is their website, and you can tweet him at western underscore values. Jason, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having us, Tom. We're excited to be here and um, really chat about kind of what we believe is an unprecedented corporate capture unseen arguably in American history across this administration. Right. So the secretary is Bernhardt. Right. For the Interior Department. I remember James Watt is kind of in the same mold, it seems, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, we, we've hearkened back to kind of the days of the land barons and the oil and gas land barons that are coming in and running really roughshod over our public lands and our environment. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Yes. Yeah, so folks that haven't been following, you know, our Secretary of Interior, now that manages all America's natural resources and public lands and has input on our rivers and water resources, all myriads of things. Well, here this guy comes from an experience of a lobbyist for the very extractive industry corporations that are now at the trough and seeking major environmental revisions and protections removed from our public lands. We know that David Bernhardt has represented at least 26 corporate entities that have a direct impact on the decisions that are being made at the Department of Interior. So to say that he's the ultimate swamp creature may be putting it lightly. Yeah, it, it might be an insult to swamp creatures. So uh, <laughs> particularly since he's actually in charge of supervising the swamps around the country, at least those that are protected. Uh, let's start with the National Environmental Policy Act. I'm, I'm not sure when this was passed. Is this back uh, Nixon era law? This was the first really strong law to protect our national parks and our commons. Yeah, I mean, that is correct. So, you know, this is America's bedrock environmental law dating back 50 years when Richard Nixon was really in a position almost forced to have to pass it. Remember, in those times, that was when rivers were catching on fire. Yeah, the Cuyahoga (laughs) River. I remember it. It was right down the road from us. So, you know, after 50 years of successes, ensuring that we balance the decisions that we make on major projects and development and extractive development, the Trump administration and really David Bernhardt, the architect, of these some 200 pages of revisions really had decided that after 50 years of success, let's gut it for our corporate pals and our former clients in the case of David Bernhardt. Are they able to do this? Because typically what legislation does, particularly when it creates an agency or a a new policy, is it outlines broad goals like, you know, we want clean air and decent water and we want to protect endangered species. But Congress doesn't have the expertise to micromanage that or even to micro define what that means. And so they give these broad policy objectives and then it's up to the agency to have their own scientists and their own experts figure out what's the best way to accomplish that goal. And so when somebody comes in who disagrees with the goal and says, well, what's the best way to screw up that goal? They simply have their scientists come up with different policies, and and therefore you can have these huge differences in implementation of law from one administration to another uh, because of that. Am I accurately describing that? Yeah, and um, I mean, I think that that is some of the uncertainty uh, that has been brought forward by industry and projects on it because it has changed. But what we see now under the Trump administration, though, is actually an agency that really even doesn't acknowledge science, (laughs) you know, which should be very frightening for the future of our country. And, you know, we even had our uh, 
appointed acting BLM director William Penley. For folks that don't know of him, he's had a 30-year history fighting this very law. Tell reporters that this was a terrible burden on us, implying that it was a burden for our agency to actually do the work to ensure that the public was protected and our environment was protected and our public health was protected by reviewing and analyzing a project through the guise of the NEPA law. One thing I think we should maybe start calling it instead of the National Environmental Protection Act under Trump, maybe it's no environmental protections anymore. Uh, because really when we look at these revisions and we can go down the top lines and, and there's many organizations looking at kind of the minutia of it, but you know, we can drive, a, a, you know, corporations now can drive a truck through um, our environmental laws, which means that we don't have to consider the science. We can pick and choose what a project needs to be reviewed or when it doesn't need to be re- reviewed. Um, and really, we're just going to be sticking our heads in the sand, ignoring probably the biggest issue that's hanging out over the entire world and the globe is climate emissions and the, the impacts of global warming. But again, when you put somebody as like a stable genius as Trump in charge, who's also filled his administration with over 280 lobbyists, you know, really this is the outcome. They are working to move the ball forward and remove protections for the American people so corporations can put money in their pockets. I understand the Secretary David Bernhardt has also on numerous occasions hidden meetings with industry lobbyists and industry fat cats on his calendar or issued conflicting versions of his calendar. This guy knows what he's doing is wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, when you um, don't release public information, you do things behind closed doors. Really, it shows what the intent is, you know, and and going forward from his days as a mega lobbyist, we know he has at least five different versions of calendars. We've been able to go through and identify at least 12 meetings that Secretary Bernhardt or his deputy secretary have had regarding NEPA rollbacks. Furthermore, we've also identified directly 10 clients in which his former clients or the clients of his now most powerful lobby firm in the world, Brownstein and Hyatt, stand to directly benefit from the gutting of America's bedrock environmental law. This is this is absolutely insane. Jason O'Neill, Deputy Director of the Western Values Project. What can we do about this? Well, first off, we need to contact and comment and say that we need to protect the lands, the water, our air, and our public health. There's an opportunity for people to comment on federalregister.gov, as well as talk to your elected officials. This is unprecedented. This is unprecedented corporate capture of our federal government. And our elected officials need to stand up to the Trump administration and say, no, public health is more important. Our wildlife is more important. Our clean water is more important. And the future of our country and, quite frankly, our planet is more important than lining the pockets of the 1% and the corporate billionaires who pay nothing back into our system. And the former lobbying clients of Mr. Bernhardt. It's absolutely amazing. Jason O'Neill, the uh, deputy director of the Western Values Project. WesternValuesProject.org is the website. Tweet them at Western underscore values. Jason, thanks for dropping by. Thanks, Tom, for having us. Great talking with you. Our video for the day, it's available over at TomHartman.com, is talking about how the Donald Trump presidency has been fundamentally destructive, not just to the United States, not just to our political norms, not just to our body politic, not just to the institutions of the presidency and our governance in general, his disrespect of judges, his disrespect of Congress, his pushing the boundaries of what an Article II office can do. But it's also destructive around the world because of the things that he's not doing, that aren't getting attended to. We've got par- major parts of the world that are spiraling into chaos that could, any, several of them could trigger World War III. And instead, he's sitting there live tweeting Fox News, literally every morning and every evening. Check it out. It's available over at TomHartman.com. On the line with us is the Harvard-educated attorney, professor at the University of New Hampshire, author of 11 books, including Proof of Conspiracy, Proof of Collusion, and his forthcoming book, which I believe you can pre-order wherever you find fine books, Proof of Corruption, Bribery, Impeachment, and Pandemic in the Age of Trump, Seth Abramson. 
Seth Abramson, A-B, uh, S-E-T-H-A-B-R-A-M-S-O-N dot net is his website. And you can tweet him at Seth Abramson. He's got a spectacularly active Twitter feed of really somebody worth following. Seth, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we talked. You tweeted that when Trump started pushing hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, there was actually a reason beyond just his desire to distract us from his involvement in the uh, Mike Pompeo Inspector General scandal. Just to give your listeners sort of the brief timeline, President Trump begins pushing hydroxychloroquine in March of 2020 alongside the antibiotic zithromycin, and prescriptions for the drug jumped 46 times immediately after that, according to the New York Times. We had our first... 4,600%. That's correct. And we had our first person dying from taking chloroquine shortly after the president pushed that drug. A man in Arizona took chloroquine phosphate, He died. His wife was hospitalized. His wife said that they were guided by Trump. So right away, the problems with someone who's not a medical doctor giving that sort of advice were evident in the data and in the actual results in terms of mortality. But what you're referring to comes in early April when we learned that Bernard Marcus, a Trump mega donor who's co-founder of the Job Creators Network, he calls on Trump publicly to, quote unquote, cut the red tape on hydroxychloroquine. We don't know if he had spoken previously to Trump about it or not in March or in April or thereafter. But we do know that Bernard Marcus had already announced by that point that he would spend a big part of his fortune. He is mega rich to reelect Donald Trump. We also I just want to note, because I didn't say this in my tweet online, that we learned the next day from MarketWatch that Donald Trump has a, quote unquote, more than modest sum invested in the French drug maker that makes the brand name version of hydroxychloroquine. It was after that point that we had all these studies showing it was dangerous, caused heart problems, caused death, had no therapeutic value for people with COVID-19. And it was after that point that Rick Bright was removed from his post for opposing the expansion of the hydroxychloroquine push in the Trump administration. And somehow after all this happens, in early May, Donald Trump starts taking the drug and decides to tell the country that he's taking it knowing all the dangers, knowing all the conflicts of interest, knowing that death has already been caused by this, knowing that there could be a drug shortage because of his public statement. It's an astoundingly irresponsible action by the president of the United States. This whole question of America surviving the destruction of our government, Donald Trump took a rather major step with an executive order basically telling every regulatory agency in Washington, D.C., that they can just basically stop enforcing the rules if they think that that will produce an economic benefit, a.k.a. profits for corporations. I read a few weeks ago that there was evidence that three different Trump family foundations, you know, the the Trump company is an accumulation of hundreds of smaller companies, and they kind of play this shell game, moving money around to minimize taxes and things, and apparently screw investors if you look at how he ran his, his casinos that three different Trump family foundations were invested in, I believe it was Sanofil, the French company that makes Plaquenil, if I have that right, the brand name version of hydrochloroquine. Has that been verified? It is verified, yes, that he has more than a modest sum invested in a fund that he may not directly control, but he's aware that his economic fortunes are tied to some degree with that French drug maker that makes Plaquenil. That's correct. Now, there's also a story about Laura Ingram, going to the White House, bringing some doctor, some MD with her, who is a big fan of chloroquine, and doing a PowerPoint presentation, a private PowerPoint presentation for Trump and maybe a few other people, I I don't know who is in the room, pitching the idea that not only is this a treatment for COVID-19, but it can actually prevent you from getting COVID-19. That seems like, I mean, he's a very gullible guy, right? He sees something on Fox News, regardless of the source, he immediately starts tweeting and talking about it. And very often there are things that are, frankly, humiliating to him. They're so wrong or so stupid. What's the old saying? You know, uh, the easiest person to sell something to is a salesman. I mean, is it possible that this is just a case of, you know, Laura and her friends over at Fox thought they had something, 
maybe, you know, without a financial motive. You know, everybody at that point was looking for a magic bullet so that we could all get back to work. And if we get sick, we could just pop a pill. That this was just, you know, wishful thinking on steroids rather than some sort of an elaborate grift in order to increase the wealth of one of Donald Trump's investment funds? Well, I certainly don't want to put aside the possibility that there were people who were within Donald Trump's inner circle who, for the best of intentions, believed that, though granted without any medical evidence whatsoever, believed that this could have a therapeutic effect or something even beyond that. Certainly there's a history with this president of making phone calls to people who don't have expertise in what he asks them to advise him on, making presentations to him despite not having expertise, and doing all of that in the face of ignoring those who do have the expertise. But I think, Tom, the reason I have this concern about this Trump mega donor is if you know that someone who is a mega donor to your campaign, who has said he will spend part of his fortune to reelect you, can make millions, uh. possibly hundreds of millions of dollars, then where do you think that money is going to end up? It'll end up in your campaign through donations from that person. And that's the concern that you have, is that on the other hand, he might expect to see that money effectively laundered through sort of regular course of business, super PAC donations from that individual or his operation, the Job Creators Network. Amazing. So this gets down to basically an election grift more than a financial grift astonishing. We're talking with Seth Abramson, the uh, professor at the University of New Hampshire, author of 11 books, his most recent or his newest one is coming out soon, Proof of Corruption. Confirm for me that I can pre-order this, uh, you know, at, at Powell's Books or Amazon or wherever I might want to. It's out in September. And can you let us know just a couple of examples of proof of corruption on the part of Trump? So you can pre-order the book, you're correct, anywhere that you can order books. And what the book essentially is, it's a massive 525-page book that lays out seven separate Trump bribery scandals. And that includes China, Turkey, Venezuela, his actions in Ukraine, of course, but also these bribery scandals, two of them connected to COVID-19, the one that we've been talking about, and also the fact that he received intelligence about COVID-19 In November 2019, we know this from ABC News and the Times of Israel, he did not take action. He would not hear any bad word said about uh, Xi Jinping. And this was at a time that Xi Jinping, we know from the Financial Times, had given dirt on Joe Biden to Michael Pillsbury, Trump's trade representative in China. So you have a transaction between Trump and the Chinese government at a time that he refuses to hear intelligence about China not being transparent in November 2019 and December 2019 about COVID-19. So that's one example. But what I lay out in my tweets is, frankly, the most upsetting of these is Donald Trump's business interests in Turkey and how they affected his willingness to allow Turkey to invade Syria and commit genocide against our allies, the Kurds. It was clearly motivated, and I lay this out in the book, by his business interests. That's mind-boggling. And let's not forget, Michael Flynn had taken a half million bucks from Turkey. He was an agent for Turkey when he was Trump's national security advisor. Seth Abramson, A-B-R-A-M-S-O-N dot net is the website, and of course his new book, Proof of Corruption, available wherever fine books are available. Seth, thanks so much for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
On the line with us is Amit Narang. He is an attorney and regulatory policy advocate with Public Citizen, citizen.org. His Twitter handle is T-R-Y-P-T-I-Q-U-E, Triptych. And Amit, welcome to the program. Hey, nice to be back with you, Tom. Hope you and all your listeners are safe and sane, or, or at least safe. Thank you for joining us. Tell me about Donald Trump's, his agencies, his regulatory agencies, the EPA, the Interior Department, etc. What are they up to? You know, the one thing that has not shut down under the pandemic has been the Trump administration's relentless quest to roll back consumer, worker, environmental, and generally public health and safety regulations. And we're at a critical stage here with the Trump administration nearing the end of its term. And so what the administration is trying to do is uh, to not let the pandemic stop their finishing touches on their anti-worker, anti-consumer, anti-environment deregulatory agenda. It is pretty conspicuous to see the agencies moving full steam ahead, maybe even uh, trying to go faster to rush these rollbacks out the door and finalize them while they are, you know, basically otherwise directing all agencies to just focus on pandemic response and any regulatory issues related just to the pandemic. We had one of the most consequential and damaging rollbacks that we've seen during the entire Trump administration. That's the rollback of the clean car standards. Those are the the fuel efficiency standards that President Obama put in place that would not only save consumers an enormous amount at the pump, but obviously would reduce carbon emissions, clean up pollution, and slow down climate change. Trump administration, despite the pandemic, probably because a lot of folks are distracted, of course, with the pandemic and not really paying attention to get out this rollback and finalize it. Because these clean car standards, not only did it make 100% policy sense, good for the environment, good for consumers, frankly, good for the auto industry in terms of giving them certainty. Yeah, the automakers uh, supported these, didn't they? Exactly. This is really going to be a problem. It's a lose for the automakers. It's really only a win for the oil and gas industry because consumers, of course, will be pumping a lot more gas at the pump and paying more money for it, of course. And that goes right in the pockets of the oil and gas industry. And that's why the public supports higher fuel efficiency standards, cleaner cars, supported the Obama clean car standards. And so this is why the administration would rather the public is not paying attention as they get this out. So I'm glad that you're shining a spotlight on it, Tom. Charles Koch is probably the most conspicuous oil industry oligarch in America and has played a a leading role, he and his late brother David, in building the right-wing infrastructure that powers essentially the Republican Party and the right-wing media world. Are there other fossil fuel oligarchs that are funding the Republican Party so extensively that the party would basically put the health and lives of Americans at risk in exchange for their continued support? I mean, the oil and gas industry just generally has an enormous amount of influence over the Trump administration, both the EPA, also the Department of Interior. Of course, the Department of Interior is run by a guy named David Bernhardt, who is a former oil and gas lobbyist. The current EPA head is a former coal lobbyist, Andrew Wheeler. So it's not only some of these ideological warriors like the Kochs uh, or, or just Charles Koch now, who certainly have a business interest, don't get me wrong, to try to uh, gut any regulation that hits into their profits. But it's the industry itself that has essentially made, you know, the EPA and the Department of Interior subsidiaries of the industry. I don't really think there's any other way mm. to describe it that's not overstating it. There's just so many conflicts of interest in this administration, folks that come straight from the industries that these agencies are supposed to be regulating at arm's length. And instead, they're just turning these agencies around into factories to produce whatever the the wish list of the oil and industry is demanding of the Trump administration. The Koch brothers, they've been obviously very impactful when it comes to environmental regulation, but it goes broader than that. It, it is an ideological push to try to reduce you know, the ability of the government to protect the public. And honestly, we're seeing it in this pandemic. You know, it's kind of crazy for me to be seeing the president and lots of conservatives on down argue that we should reopen businesses in the face of the pandemic 
because the cost to business outweigh the, the benefits of saving lives by implementing social distancing. But that is, that's just a feature of just how much these kinds of ideological warriors have pushed our government to look at policies that save lives, that protect the public's health and safety through an economic lens, first and foremost, and not through the lens of what do we value in our government? What should our government be doing? Which I think most people believe right now, saving lives and not trying to avoid short-term costs that will cost lives and and frankly will destroy our economy in the long run. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The EPA and, you know, this regulatory structure, by and large, was put into place back in the 70s. It got knocked back a little by Reagan and George W. Bush, but it's, it has survived all this time. It's being gutted now by Trump. How long, assuming Trump leaves office in you know in January, how long will it take to rebuild the Interior Department? I mean, it could take a better part of whatever the first term of the next president would be. I mean, that's a long amount of time. And we do not have that time when it comes to climate change and pollution and pushing the auto industry to give consumers more fuel-efficient cars. We've lost a lot of time under the Trump administration just on climate change. And frankly, that takes certain policy options that may have been on the table in the past taxing carbon, the one that comes to mind, it really takes it off the table because those are the types of measures that would have worked if we had more time to fight climate change. But we've lost that time. And so we do have to look at more drastic, radical measures that are needed to save the climate on the much shortened timeline that we we now have. And, you know, this is a, a common again. We, we constantly are having our government wait too long to address crises. And then we have to take drastic action to fix it. So it seems. Amit Narang, he is with Public Citizen. He's an attorney and regulatory policy advocate with Public Citizen. Citizen.org is the website, and Triptych is his Twitter handle. Amit, thanks for dropping by. On the line with us is Stephen Hassan, an expert on undue influence, brainwashing, and unethical hypnosis. He's the author of three books, Freedom of the Mind, Combating Cult Mind Control, and most recently, The Cult of Trump. Freedomofmind.com is his website. His Twitter handle is cultexpert. And Steve, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you again. I'm curious what you are thinking about where we're at right now with regard to the cult of Trump. What exactly is it? Who are the people who buy into it? How are they held in thrall to this? Uh, What's going on with this? I'm very frustrated that the messaging of what I wrote about in my book has not gotten as wide exposure as I thought it would get on all levels. What has happened since it came out is the term cult of Trump is used regularly by lots of people. But people don't understand that this actually is a framework that will guide us, if people do the deeper dive into the material, a framework that will actually get us out of a long-term mess. Even if Trump is not reelected, Trumpism is not going to go away. And with COVID-19, once we have a vaccination, there will be people who've been programmed to believe that vaccinations are bad and we'll take guns and we'll march on others. So we really need to understand the psychology of undue influence versus due influence. And we need to understand the powerful cult groups that are in the cult of Trump influencing Donald Trump and who have millions of followers who are his devotees. So can you help us understand those things by giving us some details and specifics? The COVID pandemic creates an opportunity to educate everyone about how science works and the value of experts. And one of the main things that I wrote about in my book was something called the fourth generation warfare, which is psychological operations aimed at confusing, overwhelming, delegitimizing people and institutions, which is what Trump has been doing with the people he's put into place in his administration. For example, assigning someone to be head of EPA that doesn't believe in the EPA, 
or putting someone in charge of education who doesn't believe in education. What We also have an incredible opportunity now because so many people are getting ill and unfortunately dying that I think there's an opportunity if family members and friends reconnect with their family and, and loved ones who are Trump supporters and true believers, stop calling them you know, names or saying they're stupid or brainwashed cult members and start building bridges and expressing condolences and compassion, for example, if one of their uh, pastors dies of COVID, even though the pastor had previously said, you know, it was a hoax. It's an opportunity for people to come together. That said, I want your listeners to understand there are very powerful cult dictatorships like Putin's, groups like The Family that Michael Pence is a member of, two great books by Jeff Charlotte who were written about that in the Netflix docuseries on The Family. This is a group that's been influencing politics in Washington for 80 years that people need to know about. Opus Dei, which is an ultra-right-wing Catholic cult. And the most concerning is a body of followers called New Apostolic Reformation. And this can include many megachurches where the leader claims to be an apostle or a prophet of God who gets direct revelations, that speaks in tongues, casts out demons, does faith healings. And it's those folks that many of them are saying we can't stop meeting in public and so what if people die they'll go straight to heaven and not give in to satan and they are completely indoctrinated in this black and white all or nothing good versus evil mindset that following trump is doing god's will and questioning trump and his policies is satan so we well, really now, need now, a, a heightened voice of Christians to speak out against these cultic groups. Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, who's making $800,000 a year from his charity, which if you divide it by 12, you know, it comes out to every month he receives $66,666.66, which is totally weird. <laughs> but in any case, he just posted on Facebook to his 8.5 million Facebook members, each of us will have to meet death. We need to go on with living our lives and doing our work. Fear and anxiety can be detrimental to your health as well. No matter how negative the reports are from the media and liberal politicians who want to use the coronavirus to destroy President Donald J. Trump, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we don't have to be afraid. Keeping the economy shut down is doing more damage to people's lives than COVID-19. Franklin Graham, you know, this, this extraordinary hustler writes, a, he's definitely not his father. But B, I mean, isn't this exactly what you're talking about? Yes, exactly. And Falwell also, is, son, is another one of these people that is promulgating this black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil, and saying, do what I say, because God has empowered me to lead you all. Instead of conscience, instead of realizing that true faith involves questioning and not being coerced, I definitely believe as a mental health professional and as someone who is spiritual that in order to practice religious faith, one needs to be able to have the capacity to think analytically and critically, to entertain questions and ask challenging questions to leadership and hold them accountable, which is when we're listening to Trump, anyone in his administration concerned about the safety of the American people or people who are concerned about the Constitution or the you know, rule of law are being ousted and, and loyalists are being put in, in their places. And this is very upsetting because it's portending that there will be authoritarianism as time goes on. Well, he seems to be running his administration in an authoritarian fashion. He gets rid of anybody who tells the truth or says things he doesn't like. Yeah, exactly. And tax the media, as all dictators or would-be dictators do, because they want to control information. And the bite model, which you reference in your reading, it stands for controlling people's behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions. 
And without an independent, vigorous media, people are going to be easily manipulated and indoctrinated and controlled. Stephen Hassan is the author of The Cult of Trump, Freedom of Mind. Dot com is his website. You can tweet him at cult expert. Steve, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me, Tom. On this week's Science Revolution, Vien Trong with Tom Steyer's Climate Justice joins the show with a vision for a green, red, and blue climate new deal. That vision includes Native Americans, a blue new deal for our threatened oceans, and a green new deal for our coastal communities. Dr. Michael Greger joins us. Have you gained a few COVID pounds in his new How Not to Diet cookbook? Dr. Greger tells how you can eat your way to a healthy, sustainable weight with plant-based meals. Terry Mills, president of the National Nursing Network, drops by on why a national nurse for public health is important. Plus, Laura Packard, the founder of Healthcare Voices, explains open enrollment under the ACA to help the 16 plus million uninsured Americans get themselves enrolled. Tune into the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. On the line with us is Dr. Nathan Donnelly. He is the senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. Biologicaldiversity.org is the website. They've just issued an absolutely startling report about what the EPA is up to with regard to some of these pesticides. Dr. Donnelly, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Tell us what's going on with this. The headline, Trump EPA approves 100-plus products with pesticides banned elsewhere or slated for U.S. phase-out. Yeah, so what I did was I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the EPA to identify what pesticide products the EPA has been approving recently. And so I focused on 2017 and 2018. And the information I got back was pretty crazy. In those two years, the EPA has approved about 1,200 pesticide products for use, it's about 600 per year. And the application approval rate is really high. It's about 94% of all pesticide applications ultimately gained approval. Is that and normal? So when I, uh, and that, that's, that's a good question. That's something I don't know because my analysis is really only uh, tailored to those two years. My mm-hmm. guess is that's pretty normal, actually, from just from the experience I've had with this agency. It's pretty normal. And so what really caught my eye was actually some of the ingredients in the products that were approved. You know, there were some products that had some really pretty benign ingredients in there, but there were really some, I'd say over 100, that have some of the worst of the worst pesticides still allowed for use in the U.S. And some of these, like you mentioned, are banned in other countries, particularly other countries that have a lot of agriculture, like the United States. So this is worrisome, and it really goes against the EPA's main talking point is that They're constantly trying to progress. They're constantly trying to replace the worst pesticides with others that are less harmful. And, you know, what I really think this finds is that if that's really EPA's intent, then why on earth are they approving products as recently as a year or two ago with some of the worst of the worst pesticides that they've publicly stated that they're trying to replace. Now, I remember some years ago, I believe it was 60 Minutes, like a decade or so ago, maybe two decades ago, did a special on atrazine. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. This is an endocrine disruptor. They were spraying it on apples, as I recall, and that report on 60 Minutes actually hurt the Washington state apple business. But that pesticide then I thought was banned, at least at least across Europe, and was not largely being used here in the United States. I see there's 17 new products with atrazine in it. Am I remembering this correctly? You may be remembering the report correctly, but certainly not atrazine's use in the United States. Atrazine is currently the second most widely used pesticide in the United States behind glyphosate, which is the active ingredient Roundup. We use about 70 to 80 million pounds of atrazine each year, mostly on corn and sorghum and sugarcane. It's also used on residential lawns, golf courses, athletic fields. What are the consequences of being exposed to atrazine? Well, it really depends on the level that you're exposed to, but we know that there are epidemiological studies done in humans associating high atrazine exposure with things like kidney disease, cancer, and reproductive harms like irregular menstrual cycles in women and decreased sperm count in men. And the environmental harms, I would say, are probably even worse 
particularly to aquatic organisms like fish and amphibians like frogs and salamanders, the level of atrazine needed to cause reproductive harm to these aquatic species is extremely minuscule, much lower than actually is allowed in our drinking water. Um, So it has major environmental implications, and it's one of the most prevalent pesticide water contaminants in the country. And in the last two years, as you mentioned, the U.S. EPA has approved 17 new pesticide products containing atrazine, which is really worrisome. Yeah, it, it truly is. You also note that they that many of the new pesticides that are being rolled out contain multiple active ingredients, but that the FDA does not examine what happens when products, when two different chemicals are in the same soup, basically, you know, whether it's additive, whether it's synergistic, whether it's, you know, <laughs> disastrous. Why is that? Well, the EPA, which is the agency in charge of this, it's really from a practicality standpoint. The sheer number of mixtures that you can encounter in the environment is really astronomical, particularly with regards to the permissive labels on a lot of these pesticide products. You can mix them, match them, do whatever with them before you spray them in the field. And when you have a large amount of chemical inputs in a relatively small amount of land, like happens often in the Midwest and across lots of agricultural regions. You just have all this stuff running off into the lakes and streams, drifting into the air. And so, you know, to really get a grasp on this is going to require so much more study than we're even capable of doing. So I think that's more of a practicality standpoint for them, not not really based on a robust scientific review. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. or practicality or budgets, because obviously they could do that research if they had enough scientists and and enough of a budget. I thought that in 1998, 22 years ago, the EPA started this new program called Reduced Risk, and the goal of it was to uh, basically reduce the risk of these chemicals in our environment. What happened with that? Okay. That sort of came to be right around the time the Food Quality Protection Act was signed into law in 1996. Uh, this increased uh, some safeguards to humans from pesticides. And so the idea was to identify really some of the worst classes of pesticides and then incentivize pesticide companies to come up with replacements to those really, really harmful chemicals. And so the idea was that at, over time, we would sort of eventually be replacing the worst of the worst pesticides with some that have a better safety profile. I think that that's probably happened to a small extent, but a lot of the products that have been approved in the last two years contain these same ingredients that EPA is incentivizing replacement for. So while EPA is incentivizing replacement, it's also approving new products with those ingredients that they're trying to replace. So they're sort of working against themselves and not in the best interests of society. Has the FDA become a captured agency you know, like the FCC has? Basically, the FCC dances to the tune of big telecom companies and, and big Internet service providers. Is the EPA dancing to the tune of the pesticide industry rather than protecting the public, which is their mandate? Yeah, so the EPA is a really large agency, and it has a lot of different sub-agencies in it. Um, some are worse than the others. Some are, you know, some are good, some are better. Some, but I would say the pesticide office at the EPA is really pretty bad and not reflective of the EPA at large. And a lot of that really comes down to access and the influence of the agrochemical industry. So in the 1980s, U.S. law made it so that pesticide companies have been on the hook for a lot of the costs associated with pesticide regulation. And in the early 2000s, with the passage of PREA, which is the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act, pesticide companies are on the hook for about 30 to 40 percent of the salaries, the operating costs of the pesticide office at the EPA. So the pesticide industry actually loves PREA. And why on earth would they love PREA if it costs them tens of millions of dollars each year And it's because it intermingles the regulator and the regulated. That money has bought them a lot of access that most industries don't really have at the EPA. They're in constant communication with each other to the point where the line between the two becomes very blurry. And I think that level of familiarity is really improper and not in alignment with an effective separation of industry and government. Is there also a revolving door problem there? 
Yeah, absolutely. More people uh, working yeah. for the EPA, if they dance to the tune of the pesticide industry, they know that they can get a really good paying job when they leave in the industry? Yeah, there have been people that have, have documented that. I'm not too familiar with it, but from what I've heard from people that I trust, there is definitely quite a revolving door there. Yeah. Remarkable stuff. Dr. Nathan Donnelly, he is the senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. Biologicaldiversity.org is the website. Dr. Donnelly, thanks so much for dropping by today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. Amazing. Amazing. Trump EPA approves 100 plus products with pesticides banned in other countries. You're listening to Tom Hartman. We're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican war on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 